God is good, amen? If you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, if you would, stand with me as we read from God's word this morning. Verse 1, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. How many of you are thankful for that this morning? Say amen. Amen. You may be seated. A little bit of review. This is kind of part two of last week's message, but I preached about biblical optimism. And how that relates to a number of things. It relates to our health, being thankful, our overall happiness. And I want to kind of covertly continue to explore the thought of why we can be optimistic about life. It's because of Jesus Christ, our advocate. He changes everything. Somebody say amen. Amen. I gave three closing thoughts last week that I want to give again. One of them was biblical optimism is possible because God's work in your life is a process, not a product. It's a process. How many of you can say, God is still working on me? I wish he was done, but he's still working on me. Biblical optimism is possible because God's promises go beyond this life. How many of you understand all the self-help in this world? It ends when you die and you go into the grave. But the promise is the work of God goes on beyond this life into the eternal. And so we can be optimistic because of those promises. And biblical optimism is possible because it's based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and not on our circumstances. If the gospel is true, how many of you believe it is true? Then you can be optimistic about your future. It's this last statement that's my jumping off point for my message today. The gospel fills us with hope. It brings new life to that which was dead. And it's because of the gospel that we can be optimistic. Last week, I also spoke of realism. How many of you know the world is real? And it's not always a really nice place to be in. Realism is that we live in a world where every human being has broken the law of God. How many of you understand the law demands justice? Somebody tell me, what is the wages of sin? Death. Death. That's what the law demands. It's real. We are all doomed under the law of God. There is not one that is righteous. And since no one is righteous, again, the law demands that all of us must be punished because of our sins. And we might ask, what hope is there for us? The hope we have as believers is that the one who wrote the law is also our lawyer. Amen. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate. That's a lawyer. That's one that stands and speaks on our behalf. He's an advocate. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And you see, he knows the law deeper. He knows the law better than anyone else. 
He stands again before the judgment seat. He intercedes for us before the Father and defends us by the power of his own blood. In this gospel, we are saved from the demands of the law because the one who wrote it with his own hand has satisfied the law with his own life. He has set us free not only from the punishment but from the chains of sin that have held us in bondage all our lives, you are free if you have received the gospel of Jesus today. If you have received salvation, you are free. The Bible says that the who the sun sets free is what? Free. free indeed. We're free from the need to sin. We're free from uh, the consequences. We are free because of what Jesus has done. And this is where the title for my sermon comes in. Title of my sermon today is Getting the Zipper Unstuck. Now, that may seem like a really odd sermon title. I'll explain the concept of the stuck zipper in more detail later, but let me say it pictures where many people are at. Stuck in a persona. Stuck in a lifestyle. A situation that no matter what you do, you can't get out of. Because of that thing, your life has or is about to be ruined. But there is one who can get the zipper unstuck. One who can bring about change in your life for good. And that is why we can live with such great optimism. It's all because of Jesus. Now I want to look at a very familiar story in John chapter 8. It's the account of the woman that was caught in adultery. John chapter 8, it begins, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Now, you have to understand, if we look back a chapter, it's the day after the Feast of Tabernacles. Jerusalem was filled with pilgrims, and, and uh, they were getting ready for the return trip home. And for eight days, they had been remembering the sojourn in the wilderness when they had lived in, in booths and tents in the wilderness. And so this is what they've been doing for the past eight days. And they were getting ready to go back to their homes, their villages, maybe to places like, uh, you know, scattered throughout Judea and Galilee. But before they go, many of them come very early in the morning to hear this man Jesus teach. Now, it's no small point that the incident happened early in the morning. The Greek here actually says it, it talks about an early dawn. How many of you have a hard enough time getting up at dawn? All right. This is early dawn. What is early dawn? It speaks of that time just before the sun comes up. When the sky starts, it moves from pitch black to kind of gray because the light, the sun hasn't broken over the mountains, but it's coming. It's early, early dawn. And all these people have gathered at the temple to hear Jesus preach. The sun hasn't even come up over the mountain even a little bit yet, and you all think it's hard to make it to church at 10 o'clock. Can you imagine? All these people have come to hear Jesus speak. Now when it speaks of gathering at the temple, it probably means what was known as the court of women or middle court. It wasn't the place where the altars and the menorah and the ark were. This is, was a spot where everyone could gather men and women alike. And they called it the, the court of women because women were allowed there. 
And we know that it faced east and it was enclosed by some porticos through which the sun would shine as it began to rise over the Mount of Olives. And so if you can picture the scene as Jesus teaches, the crowd gathers around him. It's still dark. By now, you have to understand Jesus has become quite a controversial figure. He's the talk of the town. Opinions are sharply divided on this young man from Galilee. Many believe he's a prophet of God. Others think he's a troublemaker. Many begin to believe he might indeed be the long-awaited Messiah. In the previous chapter, the Pharisees wanted to arrest him. They wanted to get rid of him because of what the people were saying about him. But they were thwarted because the officers they sent to arrest him, once they met Jesus, said, we're not arresting him. Have you heard him talk? And then Nicodemus stands up and he says, wait a minute, guys. We can't just go arresting people for no reason. There has to be a reason. We have to investigate him. This goes against the law of Moses. We can't do this. But no doubt his notoriety is one of the reasons so many have gathered early in the morning. And while he's teaching, there's a great commotion. A group invaded the crowd, pushing and jostling, yelling. A group of men interrupted the teaching of Jesus. They were agitated, insistent, as only people who think they are important can be. Jesus knew who it was immediately. It was the Pharisees. And in the midst of this group of Pharisees was a woman, shaken and forlorn and disheveled and somewhat subdued. I can imagine the scene like this. She even couldn't even look anybody in the face, let alone Jesus. The men made the woman stand in front of the whole group. And who was this woman? Why was she here? The answer was not long in coming. The Pharisees looked at Jesus and one of them said, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now you need to know this was a very very serious charge. Adultery was punishable by death. It was a capital offense. And those caught in the act were usually stoned to death. But that's only part of the story. The men who brought her to Jesus had something else in mind. They were trying to trap Jesus on the horns of a dilemma. They were trying to trap him between the sympathy of the crowd who obviously would not want to see this woman stoned to death and the demands of the law. On one hand, the law clearly demanded that adulterers be punished by death. But yet again, who would want to see this? The Pharisees' plan is transparent. They aren't really concerned about the woman at all, probably not even really concerned that much with her sin. She's just a pawn in their hands. Her adultery was of no particular concern to them, which, by the way, apparently did really happen. At no point in the chapter is there any suggestion that she was innocent. She was guilty. It was just a convenient way to trap Jesus and discredit him. After all, if he upheld the law and ordered the woman stoned, he would risk incurring the wrath of the crowd. But if he took the woman's side, he would be accused of not following the law of Moses. Either way, he would be caught in their trap. The Pharisees thought they were so smart. 
except they didn't understand that they were dealing with the one who wrote the law with his own hand and finger. John chapter 8, verse 4 says, They, this would be the Pharisees, said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. I don't want to get too descriptive, but notice they didn't say she was suspected. She was accused. They said she was caught in the act. Under the law, this meant that there were multiple witnesses to this crime because everything had to be established in the, uh, in the witness of, or in the, um, by the testimony of multiple witnesses. Remember, it's early in the morning just before sunrise, so it's believable they found this woman with a man maybe just a few hours earlier. But several questions come to mind as you think about it. Where was she? How did they catch her? Where was the man? I mean, by definition, adultery takes two, right? Why didn't they bring him to Jesus? Don't tell me that he escaped while found naked committing the act. That's absurd if you caught her then you should have caught him. Was this a setup? Possibly. Sure seems like one. But here's the thing. I suspect the reality is that she was a known adulterer. Someone who everyone knew about. As the Pharisees sought to lay a trap for Jesus, one of them piped up and suggested this means of tripping him up. But they needed an adulterer, and she was an easy target. She was likely someone who had been caught in this pattern of adultery for years, and everyone knew it. That's why she was so easy to catch in the act. And so the Pharisees, they think they've got Jesus trapped. They demand an answer because the law of Moses says she must die. While they're waiting for Jesus to respond, he does something very curious at first. Verse 6 says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground, on the ground. Seems strange. He's faced with this dilemma. His teaching time has been interrupted. He's in this, you know, in the jaws of this terrible trap the Pharisees have set. And what does he do? He just bends down and takes his finger and begins to write in the sand. Over the century, commentators have speculated about what Jesus wrote. Most have suggested that he wrote a verse of scripture that somehow condemned the Pharisees. Others think he listed their sins in the dirt, thus producing conviction of sin. One suggestion is that he wrote the names of the women that they had slept with, though I think that's most unlikely. Truth is, we don't know what he wrote, because John doesn't tell us. I would think that it was certainly significant and played into the events as they unfolded My opinion is that he probably was writing the Ten Commandments there in the dirt. But this is the place I've come to. It wasn't the act. It wasn't what he wrote in the dirt. It was the act of writing in the dirt with his finger that is crucial. It wasn't so much about what he wrote. It was the fact that he bent down and wrote in the dirt. Just hold that thought for a moment. Back to the events of John 8. Here's this woman standing ashamed and fearful for her life. She might be executed for her crimes at any moment. 
Jesus is simply content to write in the dirt with his fingers. And the Pharisees, they kept questioning him and questioning, well, what are you going to do? What is it, Jesus? Should she die or should be set free? What are you doing, Jesus? Are you going to give us an answer? Should we stone her? Should we let her go? Would you make up your mind? And the sense we get from the Bible is this went on for at least a little while. Everyone waiting in anticipation of what Jesus would say. But why is it so significant that Jesus wrote in the dirt with his finger? Well, the Bible records three instances in four places where someone wrote with their finger. Let me read them to you. Exodus 31, 18 and Deuteronomy 9, 10 speak of the same instance. I'm just going to read the first one. And he, that would be God, gave to Moses when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai. The two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone, written with the finger of God. Deuteronomy 9.10 speaks of the same thing. In the first instance in the Bible where someone wrote with their finger on an earthen ledger was in the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And so writing with your finger connects us to the law. The next time we find someone writing with their finger onto an earthen material is in Daniel chapter 5. It's the story of King Belshazzar and the writing on the wall. Daniel 5 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Verse 4, they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. And so he calls for Daniel to come and interpret the writing on the wall. And Daniel later says in verse 26, this is the interpretation of the matter. God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been found, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. And so here we have the thought of judgment as the Lord once again writes with human fingers. This is the very hand that Moses saw at Sinai that engraved the law into stone with its finger. First we have the law, and then we, second we have judgment connected to God's hand and his finger writing on, earthen, on an earthen medium. And the third instance that we find that someone writes with their finger is here in John chapter 8. The same hand that wrote the law at Sinai, the same hand that pronounced judgment in Babylon, now writes in the dirt as the Pharisees demand a ruling, a judgment through the law. Do you see the connection here? It's the lawgiver that's bent down in the sand as he's being These these Pharisees are demanding an answer on the law and on judgment. He bends down just as he did so many years before. And he begins to write with his finger. 
And so what does the act of writing suggest? Remember again who Jesus is speaking to. These are the Pharisees who are steeped in the history of the Old Testament. They know the history of Israel backwards and forwards. They know the Torah and the Old Testament through and through. They can recite all the 613 commandments of the Old Testament. They can recite all the different commandments that they added to God's commandments. They can tell you the exact middle word and the exact middle letter of the Torah. They know who else in history, in the history of Israel, wrote with his finger. God, the lawgiver. When Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the dirt, again, this is what I imagine. And remember, it gives us the sense that it took a while. I imagine he just started writing the Ten Commandments. And the Pharisees, you see, they would have understood immediately what his writing signified. Okay, guys. One. No other gods. Two. No idols. Three. Don't take my name in vain. Four. Remember the Sabbath day. Five. Honor your father and mother. Shall not murder. Oh, yeah. You shall not commit adultery. That's in there too, guys. But let's not forget, shall not lie, shall not covet. He sits down and he, he writes all the commandments and they would have got it immediately. If the woman was to be judged by the law, then everyone else was to be too. And as this revelation dawns on the Pharisees, Jesus stands up. He faces them and utters these words which have reverberated across time. All right, guys, here's my answer. Whichever one of you is without sin, whichever one of you is free and clear of the judgment of the law, you go ahead and throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again began to write in the dirt some more. John tells us that the men began to go away one by one, the older ones first, followed by the younger ones. Presumably, the older ones were more aware of their own sinfulness and when faced with the reality of their own judgment, could no longer stand in the presence of the lawgiver where they, whether they recognized him as such or not. The younger ones probably felt more confident, more cocky, sure of themselves, but as their older, wiser colleagues disappeared, so did their self-confidence. And they, too, slowly faded away. And so the message is this. Jesus is the great lawgiver, not only has the right to judge this woman, he also has the right to judge the Pharisees and you and I. Jesus was reminding us, uh, us of Sinai, and we must understand exactly what he was saying. He was not simply an interpreter of the law. He was also the giver of the law, the Lord of the law. Seen in this light, the act of writing with his finger in the dirt was literally a claim to deity. He's saying, I am God. By writing in the dirt, he was claiming the prerogatives that belong to God alone. He was doing what only God would do, doing what only God can do. 
In the end, it's only Jesus and the woman and the watching crowd. All her accusers have left. For the first and only time, Jesus stands up again and addresses the woman. And he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And her answer is simple. No one, Lord. They've all left. They've all gone away. What would Jesus do with her? Again, here is a woman who is unquestionably guilty of adultery. He is the lawgiver. He's the one that wrote those words that said, Thou shalt not commit adultery. She's lived a promiscuous life, seeking fulfillment in the arms of unknown men. Now the sad truth is out in the open. What will Jesus do? Well, he himself condemned the woman. After all, if anyone was qualified to stone her and carry out the demands of the law, it was him. But he doesn't condemn her. To the contrary, he pronounces a word of forgiveness. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says, listen, go. Sin no more. First John 2, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, again, I want you to picture the scene with your mind. Remember what time of day it was. The sky was gray. The sun hadn't come up. I'm adding a little here, so give me a little freedom. But as the woman is about to leave, the sun is beginning to come up over the eastern horizon. As the first rays of the dawn streak across the court of the women, they hit her full in the face. And at that moment, Jesus says to the assembled multitude, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And the transcendent message is clear. Those who come to Jesus are walking out of the moral darkness and into the light of a brand new life. The woman caught so recently in the act of adultery is exhibit A of that great truth. Her sin had been committed under the cover of darkness. Once exposed to the light, Jesus has routed her accusers, forgiven her sin, and sat her on a brand new path into the future. For those who have lived in the darkness of sin, if they will come to Jesus, they will find the same thing that this woman found, forgiveness and renewed purpose. This woman, this adulterous woman, this guilty woman was forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ and given a new purpose in life. I believe she walked in a sinner and walked out a saint. She walked in dirty. She walked out clean. She walked in guilty. She walked out innocent. She walked in in the darkness. She walked out in the shining light of Jesus with the shining light of Jesus radiating through her innermost being. That is the miracle of the gospel, amen? amen? This is what Jesus can do. We, we sang it last week. Jesus changes everything. 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 
He can take a life that is down and raise it up. He can take a life that is sinful and he can straighten it out. He can take a life that is broken and he can make it whole again. He can take a woman who is an outcast and he can make her accepted. He can take a hated tax collector and make him one of the best citizens in the community. He can take a woman who is living in sin with a man and he can make her a blazing evangelist for the gospel. That's what Jesus can do. The zipper got stuck. I said I'd explain that later on, and here we go. He can take someone who's been wearing the dirty clothes of the old life and exchange those old clothes for new ones. And there are many, many people who need to hear this truth. We need to exchange our dirty, sinful clothes for new, righteous ones. That's what he said to the woman. He said, you're forgiven. Now listen, go sin no more. Live a different way. There's a better way to live. Jesus is the one who gets the zipper unstuck. Let me illustrate. How many of you got, a, got kids or had kids? And Alea, she'll go and she'll get my shoes and she puts them on and she walks around in them. And think, she thinks she's really cool. I don't know why. You ever see a kid dress up in mommy or daddy's clothes? It's fun to pretend that you're all grown sometimes. Wearing big people's clothes, it's part of discovering who you really are. It's a way of being big for a few minutes without taking on all the problems of bigness. When you're little, you can try on adult clothes, and then when you're done, you can just take them off. But many of us did the same thing while we were growing up. We tried on different personalities. One day we try on the personality labeled cute and funny. We wear it for a while, then we take it off. Then we tried on the personality labeled goof off. We wore it for a while, and then we took it off. Over time, many of us tried a whole succession of personalities. Loyal son, class clown, big flirt, town gossip, good student, mommy's little man, everybody's friend, angry young man, rebel without a cause, prom queen, stoner, rocker, Betty Crocker, homemaker, roughneck, hellraiser, rule breaker, Miss Goody Two Shoes, and on and on. Maybe we tried on five or six different personalities while we're growing up. Each one fits us for a while, but then we take it off and try something new. But some of us made a horrible discovery. Some of those personalities we try on don't come off very well. Tried on a big old coat and the zipper got stuck. Addict, slut, adulterer, drunk, liar, thief. Bitter, petty, good for nothing, foul mouth, jealous. You see, wounded, hurt, traumatized, unwanted, broken personalities get stuck. The hurt, sinful, unwanted persona coat won't come off no matter how hard you try because that zipper is stuck. 
Some have been trapped in an unhealthy coat for 10, 20, 30, even 40 years. We tried it on as teenagers or something happened to us that trapped us. And we've been stuck with it ever since. It doesn't really fit. It doesn't feel good. We don't want it. But we don't know how to get rid of it. So you end up being critical all your life or compulsive all your life or promiscuous all your life. Or addicted all your life, sad all your life, hurt all your life, and you don't know how to change it. May I share the gospel truth with you? Jesus can change your wardrobe. He can take that stuck personality, he can take that stuck zipper, and he says, Listen, just take your hands off of it. I know how to get you out of this. You may think that because it's been stuck for so long, you have to live that way forever. No, you don't. The gospel message is that even though you've been stuck with a rotten life for decades, Jesus Christ comes along and he says, just let me get you out of that old life. I'll take those old nasty clothes and I will give you new ones to wear. I'll make you into a new person. That is the power of the gospel of Jesus. That is what the gospel can do. To me, that's the heart of what biblical optimism is all about. It's where this whole message comes together. Through Jesus, real change is possible. Through Jesus Christ, destructive patterns of behavior can be changed and your life can be totally transformed. Through Jesus the Messiah, hurt can be washed away. Shame will flee just as quickly as the Pharisees did when it comes face to face with the loving Lord. Through Jesus Christ, even though you walk in today with an old life, you can walk out with a new one. That's the promise of the gospel. That's why I'm excited about my future. That's why you ought to be excited about your future. Real change through Jesus is possible. You don't have to stay the way you are. You don't have to stay stuck in the place that you are. Again, you can stand before Yeshua Jesus and your accusers will flee. He will look you in the eye when you confess him as Lord and Savior and he will say, I do not condemn you. You are forgiven. By the blood. He will be your advocate. When the devil comes to accuse you, when other people come to accuse you, if you have to stand before the judgment throne of God, Jesus is there with you. He is your lawyer. He is more than that. He's your defense. Because he says, for this one I shed my blood. Because they've been washed in it. They're clean. They've been made new. They stand innocent because of what I've done. But listen, he will also say to you, I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He's saying, listen, now that I've forgiven you, now that your accusers are gone, now that I've got that old life unstuck, Now it's time for you to go and walk in the new.
experience all the good things I have for you. All you have to do is step out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Amen. Would you stand as we close this morning?